0: 2 Samuel 21, and we'll look at just verse 1 here in our opening, and then I'll give you the title of the message, and then we'll pray. The Bible says, Then there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. The title of the sermon tonight is The Famine of Leadership Failures. The Famine... Of leadership figures, I believe we have a dearth or a famine of leadership in our country. But uh, the the title of the sermon is meant to sort of be a double play on words or a play on words. We have a dearth or famine of leadership, but when leadership makes really poor decisions, boy, that can bring a famine of blessing on the children and the children's children and the grandchildren. Or the great-grandchildren. So tonight we want to talk about, look at a story in the Bible of a decision Saul made. Saul is dead and gone, but God is still punishing Israel for sins of a man who's dead and gone. And so we're going to talk tonight about generational curses and that kind of thing. And uh, some of this is a little bit murky in scripture. I'm just going to be honest with you, a little bit murky. I'm going to do my best to keep it simple tonight and help us understand what God's word says for us here in the New Testament era on this topic. Let's pray tonight. God, thank you for the Bible. We pray tonight that you'd help us to get everything out of your word that you have uh, intended. Lord, the message tonight can be very powerful because the truths that we'll cover tonight are very powerful. Help us, Lord, to come with an appetite ready, and Lord, help us to leave here with some decisions that will help us be better Christians. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, tonight I'm going to open with uh, an anecdote or uh, an illustration from my own life here. Nothing that directly or that uh, is directly involved me. I was just more a, a bystander observer through this. But when I was a teenage boy, 13 years old, my family moved to a new church ministry where my father was hired, had been hired to be an assistant pastor in the church as well as the Christian school administrator. And so the hire happened in probably March or April, and we moved in June. And so um, the pastor that hired him, the week before we moved up to this ministry, uh, he resigned the church and left. And so we left the church with no pastor to go to a church that had just lost its pastor. The deacon board agreed to go ahead and have my dad come on because they needed someone to run the Christian school at that ministry the next year. And so we stepped in to a role as a family where my dad's assistant pastor, school principal, and I believe when they hired him and brought him on, he was the only staff guy there and no pastor there. The reason why the pastor had resigned was not necessarily given. It was vague, uh, but um, uh, it came out sometimes later that he had committed a disqualifying sin as pastor. And this deeply and severely hurt the church because this man had been their pastor for 17 years. He had invested in them. He was a loving man. And for all practical purposes, he was a good pastor. He was a good pastor. 17, 17 and a half years he served, he resigned. About a year later it came out that he had uh, been involved in some things that were very wicked. And um then by this time the new pastor that they had brought in was already in place when the news came out and lo and behold that guy began to do some things that were not above board and really sort of immoral and were on the line of whether or not he could have continued as pastor you can make a case based on what he had done that maybe he could stay or maybe he should go, but because the church had just been wounded by this pastor of 17 and a half years, and because this guy sort of had a cavalier attitude toward his sin, they had a very ugly business meeting where they voted this guy out with him in the room. And I, there were it was a passionate, heated deacon's meeting with yelling across the auditorium, and um, I'm sitting there as a four, now 14 year old boy at the time, and, and I. I was heartbroken. I had learned to like the pastor that had just come in, and uh, he was my dad's boss and things, and uh, it was tough. It was tough. That happened back in 1998. 1998. Here we are in 2022, and that church is still not recovered from what happened. 2022. I know the man who's the pastor of that church now. I grew up going to Christian camp with him. We have each other's cell phone numbers. I text him from time to time. And I go down to this camp in Louisiana every year around Memorial Day. And he and I sit around a table and drink a cup of coffee and chat. I've even been back to that church in the last handful of years and sat in his office and chatted with him. And he has an uphill battle on his hands because this church has allowed bitterness, corporately, institutionally, to sink down in their hearts. And many of the older church members who are now well-aged, they have not let go of the hurt of what happened. This breaks my heart. This breaks my heart. Um, I believe that God may, may very well be Uh, handing them generational punishment. They may be experiencing generational punishment on the church in part because of the decisions that the pastors before had made. Um, Now, in the conclusion of the sermon, I'm going to share God's remedy how to break a generational curse. Any institution under God's wrath can easily have a generational curse removed. Um, But they must make some serious heart changes. They're going to make some serious heart changes. Now, it's easy for us to look at the train wreck of other institutional leaders and cast judgment, but we would be wise to look within the four walls of our own homes. Because within the four walls of our own homes, many of us are living under some sort of generational curse or wrath of God uh, upon our own lives. And we can look at that in our own behaviors. I see many children who copy the ugly ungodliness of their parents and grandparents. We sit in a room like this and we look around at each other and think, oh, well, we're a pretty good group of people. We've got it all together. Aren't you glad that the other people in this room don't see you at your worst when you're at home? I'm glad you don't see me at my worst when I'm at home. We've got some sins that can seem to linger generation after generation after generation. How about a scenario where dad is cavalier about God and church? He may go to church with mom to appease her, but he do not want to be here. He's just here because he's trying to keep peace in the home. You know what? Children grow up, and oftentimes they take up the same attitude. There are homes where abuse runs rampant against the children or a spouse. And that runs rampant in one generation. Then those children, they become adults and they repeat the abuse with their children. Alcoholism or drug abuse, is, when it is prominent in a family, you'll see the children or grandchildren grow up with a predisposition to be alcoholics. ...or drug abusers. How about homes where a mom and or a dad... ...have an angry spirit? Oftentimes, children grow up... ...and repeat mom or dad's anger. Maybe dad has a problem with adultery or sexual lust. and Children grow up... ...and even though mom or dad have worked to conceal the sin... Those children grow up and they become unfaithful to their wedding vows. This one's heavy, but a mom or dad who commits suicide. Stat- statistics tell us that if you have a parent who has committed suicide, you, are, you have a much higher percentage of repeating that same sin. I shared with you this morning about my grandfather who took his life and then my uncle who followed and did the same. Mom or dad who commit suicide, children, grandchildren, and sometimes even great-grandchildren seem far more likely to take their own life. These are institutional sins that can be passed down from one generation to the next. Learned behavior? Sure. Monkey see, monkey do is the adage, right? Grow up in a home with a dad who's got an angry spirit, you watch it for 18 years, learn behavior. You're going to turn around and do it. I don't discount that. I believe that, there, that there's definitely some validity there. Uh, genetically predisposed? Possibly. Possibly. Is it possible that the sin gene is bent within our makeup because of behavior of our parents? I'm not a genetics. I don't study that stuff. I I can't say one way or the other, but I can see it, maybe. Um, Punishment of God. I believe you can make a strong case from Scripture that the sin being visited down upon the third, we'll look at some verses in the Bible, being visited down upon the third or fourth generation. God never forgets your wicked behavior. He doesn't. You may think that you are doing wrong and getting away with it. It very well may be that your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren deal with the punishment of God over something you did, and your great-grandchildren don't even know your name, yet they're having to deal with it. You say, oh, that's, that's a stretch, that's a reach. No, I don't think it is, and we're going to look at a passage tonight that shows that's just not the case. God never forgets your wicked behavior. Never. You think I did it, no one saw me, I got away with it. My wife doesn't know, my husband doesn't know, the pastor doesn't know, but let's not forget, God always knows. He always knows. And even if no one else saw you or caught you, God always knows. Now, I don't want to make you think that one time you lied in the second grade and your children are going to grow up to be liars and your grandchildren are going to grow up to be serial liars. That's not the point. I'm talking about deep rooted sin where you are consciously and willingly choosing a habit lifestyle and that habit lifestyle can hurt and molest and bother and destroy who you are and your relationship with God and potentially even others. I believe that leaders can make wicked choices that hurt those under their purview before we point the finger outward at others it would be wise to look inward at our own hearts so let's hop in and look at this wild story of the three year famine that israel faced over saul's sin saul's dead and gone well over 40 years and yet god is still punishing israel over a sin that their leader from 40 years prior had committed but we're going to see that god's wrath can be appeased and Mercy can be understood and enjoyed if the right steps are followed. So let me give you here, I believe it's three main, or I don't have the outline, of, or I don't have the complete, what you have in your hand there. What do we got, five points tonight. Five points tonight. All right, five thoughts. Here we go. Let's jump in. Number one, notice Joshua's commitment to the Gibeonites. So let's back up and look at the first interaction with the Gibeonites and really a poor decision that was made by Joshua going all the way back to Joshua chapter number 9. So take your Bibles over to Joshua chapter number 9, and we're going to learn where the Gibeonites became involved with Israel and uh, just exactly the, the uh, commitment that had been made by Joshua to the Gibeonites. Joshua chapter 9, verse number 3. Danny, could you run me that water bottle right here? Could you run that up here to me? Thank you very much. Joshua chapter 9, And verse 3, we're going to read down through verse number 15. The Bible says, And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho and Ai, they did work uh, wily and went and made as if they had been ambassadors and took old sacks upon their asses and wine bottles, old and rent and bound up and old shoes and clouded upon their feet and Old garments upon them, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua, unto the camp at Gilgal, and said unto him, and to the men of Israel, We be come from a far country. Now therefore make ye a league with us. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, Preadventure ye dwell among us, and how shall we make a league with you? And they said unto Joshua, We are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, Who are ye? And From whence come ye? And they said unto him, From a very far country thy servants are come, because of the name of the Lord thy God. For we have heard the fame of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond Jordan, to Sion king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan, which was at Asheroth. Wherefore our elders and uh, all the inhabitants of our country spake to us, saying take victuals and uh, with you uh, for the journey, and go to meet uh, them, and say unto them, We are your servants, therefore now make ye a league with us. This our bread we took hot for our provision out of our houses on the day we came forth to go unto you, but now, behold, it is dry and moldy, and these bottles of wine which we filled were new, and behold, they be rent, and these are garments, and our shoes are become old by reason of the very long journey, and the men took of their victuals, and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them, and made a league with them, and let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. So uh, there's a couple ways to look at that. You can think, oh, those Gibeonites, they lied, they were deceptive. Uh, you keep reading down, and you find out they're just like, they're just a couple of miles down the road, okay? And they're right, they're right, they're neighbors to where they are. And they would have been one of the next cities, to be destroyed, and you think, oh, those Gibeonites, they lied. I can't believe they do that. Well, hold on just a minute. Put yourself in their shoes. You see that Israel is steamrolling through their promised land, and they're going to eventually come in, and they're going to completely wipe you out. Boy, you go into uh, protection mode and save yourself uh, at all costs. And so they come up with a plan to try to deceive Joshua into signing a league or a treaty with him, and lo and behold, it works. They get bread that's moldy, and they get clothes that are old and tattered, and they get bottles of wine that are rent, and they head on over, and they say, oh, we're from a long, long, long ways away. In fact, you'll probably never run into us, but just in case, we'd like you to sign this peace treaty and make a commitment that you won't hurt us. And Joshua makes a mistake. In fact, this is the first mistake Joshua we know of makes In in this story, uh, from his uh, leadership in Israel, he does not inquire of the Lord. Now, I want you to take note of that. He does not inquire of the Lord. He just, with his own eyes, looks at their clothes and looks at their food and looks at their wine and says, Well, okay, logic says they're from a long ways away. Let's go ahead and make peace with these people. Well, they get a couple of miles down the road, and lo and behold... The Gibeonites were not honest with them, but the treaty had been signed. And when a man of God or a woman of God gives his or her word, we are to keep that till forever, forever. And that's exactly what happened. And here, all these centuries later, the Gibeonites are dwelling in the tribe of Benjamin uh, in their own town. In fact, the town of Gibeon became one of the Levitical cities where the Levites would dwell, and so Joshua's commitment to the Gibeonites, Joshua did not pray, he made a rash decision, he made a rush decision, and he made a commitment, but yet Israel was to keep that to their own hurt, Joshua's commitment to the Gibeonites. Number two, notice Saul's crime against the Gibeonites. Go back to 2 Samuel 21 and look at verse number one. The Bible says, then there was a famine in the days of David, three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, it is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. Now, I'll use the word religion loosely here, but Saul's religion sure seemed odd. Um, by the way, go ahead and t- turn over to 1 Chronicles 9. I'm going to show you something show you something here found in the genealogies of the old testament but while you're finding your way there let me just say his religion seemed odd now god had commanded him to wipe out the amalekites remember that back in first samuel 15 god said wipe them out i mean kill their men kill their women kill their children kill their animals nothing is to be left uh, that is living among the amalekites and saul did not fully obey in fact he, uh, he kept back some of the lambs for what he claimed was for sacrifice, although I question that. He kept the king alive to humiliate and embarrass him, and uh, he did not fully obey. But then he goes off... And in his zeal, he kills the Gibeonites. He tries to eradicate the Gibeonites. Now, he did not obey God when it came to the Amalekites, but he goes off and breaks Joshua's commitment to the Gibeonites and tries to wipe them out. And if that was not weird enough, we find in First Chronicles 9 that Saul was probably related to the Gibeonites. Look at First Chronicles 9. Look at verse 35. And in Gibeon dwelt the father of Gibeon. In fact, not probably. Saul was related to the Gibeonites. And in Gibeon uh, dwelt the father of Gibeon. Who is the father of Gibeon? Uh, Jahiel, whose wife's name was uh, M- Maka, and his firstborn son Abdon, then Zer, and Kish, and Baal, and Ner, and Nadab. Skip down to 39, okay? So we see Ner is one of the children there. Uh, and Ner begat Kish, and Kish begat Saul, and Saul begat Jonathan. So... Here's, the, here's the, the tie. You got Jehiel, the father of Gibeon. He gives birth to Nair, who gives birth to Kish, who gives birth to Saul. So Jehiel is the great-grandfather of Saul, and he is, the Bible describes him as, the father of Gibeon. Saul, why are you trying to wipe out your own people? Why are you trying to kill your own people? Um, this crime seemed quite bizarre, and Uh, I have tried to rationalize and think and understand why Saul would have done this. And maybe there was bad blood in the family. I know that uh, studying the life of Saul, he liked to give houses and great wealth to the men who were loyal to him. Maybe he was wiping people out to clear up land and homes to give away to people who were in his kingdom. Whatever his reason was, I'm not sure. But here, you have Joshua, a leader. He makes a poor choice and doesn't pray. And then you have Saul, who's a leader. He goes against Joshua's commitment, and he is killing them in in mass. Now, we don't have any other detail about this genocide in Scripture about Saul and the Gibeonites other than 2 Samuel 21, 1, at least that I'm aware of that I could find. But all the same, he was killing the Gibeonites. And so we see Saul's crime against the Gibeonites. Number three, look at God's chastisement of the Israelites. God's chastisement of the Israelites. King Saul, by the way, go back to verse number one. Verse number one there. Then there was a famine in the days of David, three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. So there is a famine that lasts for three years. King Saul's decision-making was quite flawed and would not only hurt his own family, but it would even hurt the nation deeply. Well after Saul was dead and in the grave, God was still punishing Israel institutionally for their uh, former leader's great sin. Now, listen up. Institutional sin leads to institutional punishment that can be felt for generations. Institutional sin leads to institutional punishment that can be felt for generations. Joshua made a poor choice. Israel had to live with it for generations. Saul has made a poor choice. A generation removed, Israel is still having to deal with this because God is punishing Israel for a choice that he made. Uh, Let's do a little Bible study here. Turn over to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5. And I'm going to ask you to put a marker in Exodus 20 because we're going to come back to it at the very end of the sermon. Exodus chapter 20 and look at verse number 5. Second book of the Bible. Everybody find it? Okay, look at chapter 20, verse 5. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God, speaking of idols, visiting the iniquity, look here, of the Father, unto the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. When you choose sins that say to God, I hate you, that iniquity is visited, according to Exodus 20, to the third and fourth generation. Turn over to Numbers 14. Numbers 14, verse 18. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Get over there. Numbers 14, verse number 18. This may seem repetitive. These verses may seem repetitive, but I'm having you do this for a reason. Numbers 14. Look at verse 18. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers or of the parents, unto the children, upon the children, unto the third and fourth generation. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter number five. Deuteronomy five in verse number nine. Just a few pages to the right there, Deuteronomy chapter five. Look at verse number 9. It says, Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. Again, speaking of idols. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations of them that hate me. Now this is fascinating to me. God is described, especially in the Numbers passage, God is described as merciful and forgiving. Again, let me read this. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity. He's described as merciful and forgiving. However, even in that, even in God's mercy and a forgiving heart, God still promises to visit the iniquity to the third and fourth generations. So what institutions has God given us? What institutions has God given us? Um, There are three institutions that apply to us today in the Bible. There is the home, the home. I believe that institutional sin by a leader in a family uh, can lead to the punishing hand of God upon the children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. There is government, government. And then the third institution is the church. The home, the government, and the church. I have seen families that seem that seem as though they live under the punishing hand of God. There is a famine of righteousness in that family. Famine of righteousness. Why? Some parent or grandparent or great-grandparent very well may have defiled the fertile ground of God's blessing and now a famine is being felt in the home, in the family tree. Now I believe we're witnessing this in our country. I believe we're witnessing this in our country. I think that uh, the harvest of, of prosperity as, is, as, is a result of centuries of us being a God-fearing nation. But if we're honest, the last 50 or 60 years, we've not been a God-fearing nation. Where do you sort of go back and say there was the event where God removed his hand of blessing? This is my opinion. But I think when we kicked God out of the courtroom and out of the public schools, I think that was God saying, okay, all right, fine. You don't want me in your classrooms? You don't want me in your courtrooms? I'll back away. And now... All these generations removed, here we are dealing with generational curse being visited upon the iniquity of our parents and our grandparents. I've seen this happen to churches. White Oak Baptist Church, I'm so, I can't tell you how thankful I am. Barry Brown and Michael Peslack were honest, integritous men who led this church. I cannot stand here and tell you how vital that is to the health of this church. The old adage is don't, go take, don't take a church. To men looking to pastor, they tell men who are looking to pastor, don't take a church, start a church. Because it will take you a long time to get past the problems of a, a wounded and hurt church. And the reality is the average tenure of a pastor in America is three and a half years. You say, well, why would a pastor leave within three and a half years? Because they go somewhere and they are not listened to because the church is wounded by a previous leader who let them down. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes it's not the pastor that let the church down. It's a deacon board run church that's that's hurt the church. I have friends right now who don't have the liberty to run their churches and lead their churches the way that I do. I thank God for our deacons. They're willing to look me in the eye and say, Pastor, that's probably not a good idea, but yet they let me lead. They let me lead. Uh, There are other churches. I have friends who there's no way they would have the liberty to do in those churches. They've got to get every penny approved by somebody, some deacon who thinks they have a stranglehold on the church. It's their church. Some leader has hurt that church, and the church suffers generation after generation after generation. There are a variety of sins that I've had to battle with in my own life to switch gears from church to home. There are a a number of sins I've had to battle against in my own life. Sins that I've had to deal with since I was a small child. A small child almost as though there was a predisposition to do wrong, a a natural bend toward a doing wrong. I heard of a child once that at four years old would uh, climb on top of the counter and pull the medicine bottles down and try to get the lids off and put all the pills in the mouth they could. And as that child got older, they became a drug addict and almost at a young age there was this desire even at a young even at a, an innocent age to where does that come from well dad and granddad struggled with drug addiction and this child almost just has a predisposition to be the same thing and in my own life I get so angry at at such a young age, I'd I'd lose my temper and there were a handful of other sins that at a young age I just had a lean toward and a bend toward and then I begin to hear about my, my, my grandparents and my great grandparents and some of the sins that they dealt with and I'm going, is there a curse on me? Is there a sin that's upon me? And I know I'm giving some things tonight. There are people sitting out here tonight. You're probably saying, oh, pastor, I don't wholeheartedly agree with you. By the time we get to the end of the message, I think we'll all be on the same page. But I am left to wonder if the uh, chastening hand of God has not been put upon me because of choices made by a parent or a grandparent. By the way, it is no excuse for me to live in sin because of something that my dad or my grandfather or my great-grandfather did not an excuse. I don't get to point backwards and say, well, they set me up for failure. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, no. I own what I do. I don't point backwards. But by looking at this truth, I can better understand where my weaknesses are and I can work on them and I can overcome. It's almost with some families and some countries and some churches as though God has written Ichabod above the door. The glory of the Almighty, the glory of God, has departed. If you have God-given authority within one of the three God-ordained institutions, you better be sure not to sow the seeds of great transgression. Your grandchildren and even your great-grandchildren may end up suffering the chastisement of God for your rebellion. Now, I'm sure, by the time you get to 2 Samuel 21, Saul's been in the grave for 40 years. I'm sure the first year there was a famine, the farmers probably thought, well, there was just a change in the weather patterns. Year two, they may have thought, well, let's hope for better, let's hope for better next season. But by year three of the harvest not coming in, David knew that this was coming from God. And as we will see, generational curses can be broken. David would do his part to make sure that the mistake of Saul would be forgiven and Israel could move on. We've seen, number one, Joshua's commitment to the Gibeonites. Number two, Saul's crime against the Gibeonites. Number three, God's chastisement of the Israelites. Number four, notice David's compensation to the Gibeonites, David's compensation. Now, I've got to be honest. These next few verses are um, interesting. They're, they're hard to read. Okay, I don't fully understand why it worked that way, uh, but um, they're in the Bible and we're going to read them and um, we're going to draw some applications out. Look at verse 2. And the king, that's David, called the Gibeonites. So they're still dwelling among them. The Gibeonites were still their servants, as they were back with the league with Joshua. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn to them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal to the children of Israel and Judah. Wherefore David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And wherewith shall I make the atonement, that ye may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Now, sometimes changing our perspective allows us to see things more clear. You may think that God was acting irrationally uh, to punish Israel after Saul uh, was dead. But stop and think about it from the Gibeonites' standpoint. They're thinking, we were almost totally eradicated by this guy. When is Israel's army ever going to be punished for this? When is Israel going to ever suffer for them going back on their word against us? And when you sometimes look at it from the other angle, boy, all of a sudden God doesn't seem so unjust. God never forgets trespasses. Never. Whether you do the trespassing or someone has trespassed against you, God always, listen to me, always, 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 always in his time sets the record right. Every time. God doesn't ever say, well, I'm going to give that one a pass. Every time, God sets the record right. Look at verse 4. And the Gibeonites said unto them, said unto him, We will have no silver nor gold of Saul, nor of his house, neither for, uh, for us shalt thou kill any man of Israel. And he said, What ye shall say, that will I do for you. And they answered the king, the man that consumed us, speaking of Saul, and that devised against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the coasts of Israel, let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the Gibeonites, what do they want? They wanted a life for a life. Hey, you you took out our men? Well, then Saul's sons, they need to die. Saul decided he was going to kill us? Okay, well then Saul's sons are going to pay the price. You see here how Saul's choices are being visited on his children? It was Saul who had led Israel to kill the Gibeonites, so it was Saul's sons who would need to die by the hand of the Gibeonites. And this put David in a difficult place because he had to pick the seven sons to turn over. No, thank you. So who did David choose? Look at verse eight. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of a- Aiah, uh, whom she bare in Saul. So Rizpah was one of the um, one of the concubines of Saul. In fact, this is the concubine that Abner was accused of of sleeping with uh, after Saul died. And so um, uh, Rispah, and whom she bear to Saul, Armani, and Mephibosheth. This is a diff- obviously a different Mephibosheth. And the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul. Now, real quick here. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. but critics of the King James Bible say that the King James Bible has a mistake in it. They'll use this right here. And they'll say that, ah, see, the Bible says Michael was childless, Unto her death. But here it says that these were the five sons of Michael. So which is it? Was she childless or did she have five sons? Well, you got to keep reading. It says the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahethelite. So uh, let's see. Um, Michael had a sister. And that sister most likely died probably giving birth to the youngest and Michael raised the five boys for her brother-in-law for her brother-in-law and so they were ascribed to her even though she did not give birth to them so it says whom she brought up for she did the raising even though she did not give the birth we know from looking at genealogies that Adriel was married to Michael's sister and so there is no Contradiction in the King James. Just want to get that out there. Look at verse 9. And he delivered them, the five sons of Michael, um, the five sons of Adriel, and the two sons of Rispa, he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the hill before the Lord. And they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. These seven boys had to die. Because of the transgression of their father and grandfather. Dads, be careful how you behave. Be careful how you treat others. God may very well pour out his chastisement on your offspring long after you're dead and gone. Joshua's commitment to the Gibeonites. Saul's crime against the Gibeonites. God's chastisement of the Israelites. David's compensation to the Gibeonites. Lastly, number five, notice David's courtesy to the house of Israel. These seven boys died and uh, they were, um, uh, their, their ropes were most likely cut and their bodies fell to the ground below the gallows. And Look at verse number 10. And Rizba, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for her upon the rock from the beginning of harvest until water dropped upon them out of heaven and suffered neither the birds of the air to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. And it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done. Notice letter A, Rizpah's motherly love. Rizpah's motherly love. These bodies were left out. It was harvest time. but There was no harvest because of the famine or little harvest because of the famine. Now, no doubt, Rizpah wanted to give a proper burial to these seven boys. David said, no. No. The bodies stay left out until God sends the rain. What did Rizpah do with her two dead sons? Any mother in here must feel some pain in their heart for what Rizpah must have gone through. Rizpah had done nothing wrong. Her two sons had been taken from her and hung. Her five nephews taken and hung. Rizba goes and she lays sackcloth upon a rock for her to have a place to sit and possibly even sleep. And she keeps the scavenger scavenger birds away from the boys. And she keeps the animals coming and from devouring their bodies. She watches guard. And I don't think any bear or lion would have wanted to get close to those bodies or that angry mother watching guard and she stayed there she stayed there around those bodies until the rain came and Rizpah loved her children even though they are dead even though they were dead we don't know what Rizpah knew we don't know what she understood but we see a level of commitment to her family that can be appreciated and can be uh, with which we can show great honor and respect to Rizpah for loving her children And I'm thankful for mothers who stay there for their children through thick and thin and love them when they're good and when they're bad and do their very best to raise children in a way that's honoring and pleasing to the Lord. But let's look at letter B and notice David's loyalty. David's loyalty. Look at verse number 12. And David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, which had stolen them from the streets of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them, when the Philistines had slain Saul in Gilboa, and he brought up from thence the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan and his sons, and they gathered the bones of them that were hanged, and the bones of Saul and Jonathan and his sons, his son buried they in the country of Benjamin and Zela, in the sepulchre of Kish his father, and they performed all the king commanded. And after that, God was entreated for the lamb. Saul made himself David's enemy, did he not? You remember Saul chasing David around the wilderness, trying to kill him, trying to pin him to the wall of the spear on two or three different occasions, and then chasing him around the wilderness, and uh, trying to kill him over and over and over again, and even Saul, after Saul became king, there just always seemed to be some reminder that Saul's remnant did not like David. You remember Shimei a couple of chapters ago throwing rocks and and stones and dirt and cursing him in the air, and and, and then you have Sheba who was a Benjaminite who was trying to start a whole other revolt. And every time David turned around, there's Saul and there's uh, some of Saul's descendants uh, pestering and annoying and trying to hurt David. That caused David uh, to have animus in his heart towards Saul? No. David took the bones of Saul, he took the bones of Jonathan, and he took the bones of these five boys, and he gave them a proper burial, which in the Israeli culture was a very, very important deed to be done. He honored them with a proper burial. Now, you may be here this evening and thinking, well, Pastor, I mean, I see it from Scripture. You know, the, 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 the anger or wrath of God, the punishment of God, being visited down three or four generations. I see it, but I, come on. I mean, logically, I, that's not fair. That's not fair. That's something my great-grandfather did, God could punish me for. I had no say in that. Uh, that's not really fair. And I would say that this generational curse thing was part of the Old Testament law. And that's important to understand. It was part of the Old Testament law, but I believe it can be realized today. I've given you some examples of where I believe it can be realized. However, there is a cure for generational curse. There is a cure for, gener- a cure for generational curse. And this would apply to any institution. This would apply to the home. This would apply to uh, a church. Okay? If I were to ever pastor a church that had been hurt and was dealing with a generational curse, I'd go in and preach a sermon like this, and boy, we would talk about following these three steps, and we'd put some things in place to work on these three steps that I'm about to give. Because I believe that any institution that follows these three steps, God will lift the curse and put his blessing on them again. And by the way, that applies to you. You don't get to point backward at great-granddaddy and say, I have a problem with sexual lust because my great-grandfather was a womanizer. Or I have a problem uh, with uh, lying because my grandfather went to jail uh, for being a liar and did all kinds of things that were uh, uh, wrong. You you don't get to point backwards, okay? There is a cure in the era of grace that will beat any generational curse, and here it is. Here's the three-step approach to beating a generational curse. Notice first, repentance of sin. Repentance of sin. These should be up on the screen. Repentance, do we get them? Okay, coming up shortly. Repentance of sin. You can write down the word repentance even if it's not on the screen, can't you? All right. Is it T E N C E or T A N C E? That's the question. And uh, some of you, oh, there it is. It's A N C E. All right. Okay. Repentance of sin. 1 John 1 9. If we. Say it with me. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Boy, the very first thing you should do is get on your face and you should confess the sin that you have a struggle with within the institution you're a part of. All right? You see, I grew up in an angry home and I've got an anger problem. Very first thing you need to do is get on your face and you need to confess the sin. That has plagued your family for generations. And you need to repent. When I say repent, I mean you need to mentally turn from that behavior. You need to mark it as wrong and you need to declare war against it. God wants to see that you're serious about this thing. It's not enough to say, well, I'm Irish. I can't help it. Well, I'm redheaded. I get hot under the collar. All right? Okay? You you, you just don't get to do that. All right? If alcoholism has plagued your family, it's not fair for you to say, well, you know, uh, it's just how it is. We're just, you know, we just we love our, we love our wine before dinner, and, you know, we, we love a good drink at Thanksgiving and Christmas. And No, listen, you get on your face, and you confess the sin, and you own it, and you apologize to God for the sin of your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents, and you make every effort through God's help to repent, to turn from that sin mentally, to make a mental shift, a mindset shift. We're not going to live that way anymore. God needs to see that you're serious. That verse, First John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, I completely agree with that verse. Obviously, it's in God's word. I stand by everything it says. But oftentimes, I think we abuse the spirit of the verse. We do. Well, I told God, I'm sorry, you know. I stared, I stared a little too long at a woman in Walmart, or I thought too long on an impure thought, or, you know, I said something I probably shouldn't have about brother or sister such and such and Lord, I'm sorry. But then you turn around a day later and you do the exact same thing. Are we really repentant? Or are we just, well, I shouldn't have done that? It's almost a token apology, right? If my son apologizes for directly disobeying me, and then five minutes later turns around and directly disobeys me, I'm going to question the the, the legitimacy of his apology. Are you with me this morning, this evening? you with me? Repentance of sin is saying, this is wrong, and I'm going to make some changes, and we're going to stop this thing right here and right now. We're going to stop it. I have talked about my battle with anger. My grandmother had a fierce temper. And my understanding is that my grandmother grew up in a home where if she brought home anything less than an A-plus on a report card, she was beaten, she was put in a room and left there grounded for two weeks where she couldn't leave her room except to go to the bathroom and to eat. That's just how it was. And she lived in an angry home, and, um, and, and she became angry, and then my dad lived in an angry home, and then my dad got saved, and my dad declared war on a temper. Did, ha, ha, did he in my childhood totally overcome it? I don't think he totally did, but boy, he made a lot of progress. And to my, my understanding is that he has completely conquered that now. But you know what? A, a sin that was passed down generation after generation after generation landed on me as a child, but there is a cure, and it is a total declaration of war on that sin and a decision that I'm going to look backwards, I'm going to confess it as a family, and I'm going to do everything I can to set a new direction in the home. Next. Notice, faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now listen. You got saved. You're a new creation. You don't get to keep living the way you did before you got saved. There ought to be some changes. Now I'm not saying that uh, if there aren't changes, you're not saved. But what I am saying is that if you are a new creature, then you ought to behave like a new creature. Amen? What did James say? He said, faith without works is dead. And I'm not adding works into salvation tonight. That's not what I'm doing. I don't believe that. Jesus did all the doing, and we do all the believing, and that's all there is to it. But once you have been saved, boy, there ought to be some real changes that take place in your life. This is why Paul said, work out your own salvation With fear and trembling. You ought to be able to look at the hand of God in your life and see some things inwardly that are changing and say, I am a new creation in Christ and my outlook on life is different and that is going to affect my behavior. By the way, what I believe affects how I behave. If your behavior hasn't changed, then your belief probably never changed. Do we believe that tonight? Faith in Christ. And by the way, that faith in Christ that saves us, that same faith is what changes us after we're saved. You say, well, my dad was a drunk. I can't help but pick up a bottle of alcohol. Then, my friend, your faith is very, very weak. Very, very weak. Because through faith, we can overcome any sin. We need to put our faith in Christ. The last step here is that we must be devoted to live a consecrated life. A consecrated life. Romans chapter 12. Verse 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy. Acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. Attention up here, by the renewing of your mind. That ye may prove What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? You make a full repentance of sin, familial sin, institutional sin. You put your faith in Christ and you make a choice that you're going to be transformed by the renewing of his mind and you're going to live a life that's holy and you're going to live a life that's acceptable. My friend, God's going to lift that sin curse right off your family and you're going to be able to hand a new heritage down. Turn back to Exodus chapter 20 with me. Exodus chapter 20. So many people like to blame their struggles on a... We're all looking for an excuse, aren't we? Well, I can't help it. My dad this. I can't help it. I was uh, exposed to this. And I'm just a product of my environment. Hey, let's not be a product of our environment. Let's be a product of God's grace. Amen? Look at Exodus 20. Look back at verse number 5. Thou shalt not... Bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of thy fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Again, we see the wrath of God over sin visited unto children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. But look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So we had a curse for three or four generations, but we get a promise of a blessing for a thousand generations when we choose to love God and keep his commandments. You have a choice tonight, my friend, on what kind of blessing or curse you're going to leave institutionally in your homes. The hand of God's wrath or the hand of God's mercy, you get to make that choice by the way you live. Now, I'll finish with this. You cannot go backwards and change anything you've done. You can't do that. But you can begin right here, right now, setting a a path, leaving a legacy of righteousness for God to pour out His mercy upon your children for a thousand generations. Why don't you make that choice tonight? Why don't you identify private sins in your life that you struggle with? Why don't you ask God to give you the victory? Why don't you follow that three-pronged approach? of repentance, faith, and a consecrated life. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed tonight. Lord, a tough passage we covered tonight. One I no doubt would have probably never preached out of if I wasn't going verse by verse through the Bible. But Lord, you have a lesson in all of these scriptures for us. Your word is profitable. And I know tonight that there are sins in this room that no one knows about except you and that person who you're working on right now, Lord. All of us have something in our life that we battle with—a besetting sin. And Lord, there's a cure. Your blood can wash away those sins. Your 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 mind can be our mind if we let it. Lord, help us tonight to make a choice, to break away from sin and to hand to our children, righteousness. May it, we as a country. Turn from our sin. And may we as a country see your hand of blessing upon us once again. May we as a church stay away from sin. Protect our leadership. Help us, Lord, to be men of God that love you and are faithful to you. Lord, may you continue to bless this church mightily. Where there is private sin, may we deal with it. May we confess and forsake it for the good of our children. And future generations, in Jesus' name we pray.